I want us to start this morning uh, with uh, a reading out of Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm sure you probably expected that since I told you what I was going to preach about, and the uh, bulletin did too. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2 here in the letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, Ephesian church, he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, <clears throat> even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not from yourselves it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Saved by good works, saved by grace, not by good works, not by our personal achievement. I think that when I first started thinking about grace, being taught more about grace, and by the way, I was growing. In fact, I was uh, just before I went to school, the Sunset School of Preaching, I had a, uh, one of my friends came and said, Brother, you've got to go out and we're going to take this class out here. It's, it's just great. And it was a study in Galatians, which had a lot to do with grace. He said, I've never heard stuff like that before. I'm sure those of you who are in churches of Christ, as old as I am, or maybe even a little bit younger, know what I'm talking about. And so uh, it's a, an easily accepted doctrine, I think. You can understand the concept, but it's not so easily lived out in our daily lives. But you know, you can't read through the New Testament, including... Uh, or not only, rather, the, 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 this letter to the Ephesians, but you can't read through that New Testament without seeing that both Jew and Gentile struggled with the concept of being saved by grace. So it's not just us who has a problem with it. They had it back then, and I think it's kind of a human race problem, to be honest with you. And yet, being saved by grace is meant to be a message of freedom and joy. People long to be free. You know, the euphoria that swept over Europe after the fall of Nazism was a natural phenomenon. The euphoria that swept over Eastern Europe after the collapse of communism was a natural phenomenon. Joy always accompanies freedom. Now, for those of us who lived through those times, we easily recall the events, you know, and being see, seeing them on newsreels and one thing and another. But for others of you who are younger, you probably don't even understand what I'm talking about, and so you're going to have to take our word for it or maybe go back and read a little history and do a study of the history of the times. But there was always this euphoria that accompanied freedom, and I think we see it even today. Even today when uh, rulers are oppressive in their countries and their nations, there's a depression and there's a lack of joy there. <clears throat> For example, the harsh restrictions imposed by the Taliban on Afghanistan created a sense of depression that was previously unknown to the people of that country. TV was outlawed and news reporters observed television sets dangling from trees where they had been thrown out of second-story windows because of the fear that the people had that someone from the Taliban might see it and they would be uh, brought to account because of it. There's a that's only one example, by the way, of the harshness that was of living under the Taliban. With them, there was no grace in Afghanistan, only the harshness of Sharia law. 
Unfortunately, and this is what I want to make the application of this, unfortunately, I think some Christians live under a somewhat similar regimen of rules and regulations, only, of course, we, they are self-imposed. Uh, millions live in shame and in fear and intimidation when they should be free and productive and, and jubilant. John Stott in Authentic Christianity wrote that the repeated promises in Islam's Quran about the forgiveness of a compassionate and merciful Allah are all made to those who have been weighed in Allah's scales and proven themselves to be meritorious. Now, I haven't read the, uh, uh, the Quran, and uh, although I'm doing some study on it, and, but apparently he did. And what I have seen so far, what little I have done, <clears throat> have read in, in there, I think he's right about that. A person had to achieve uh, the mercy and compassion of Allah. On the other hand, Stott points out that the gospel is good news to the undeserving. Thank God that the symbol of the religion of Jesus is not a set of scales on which we weigh our good deeds against our bad ones. Thank God that the symbol of Christianity, of the religion of Jesus, is the cross. The cross is not only about what Jesus did, but it's also a symbol of a life to be lived. We'll talk about that a little bit. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible tells us there that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling place among us. Talking about Jesus Christ, of course. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 17 tells us, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now I know, and probably you do too, that grace was extended in many ways to the ancient Israelites. You see it in the Old Testament. But what he's talking about here, I think, in John, in John chapter 1, is that the perfection of it, the fulfillment of it, in, in a very real sense, came only through Jesus Christ. We understand more than they ever did, perhaps, or should, that the grace is what Jesus brought to us. The apostles became uh, marked men because of Jesus. Grace upon grace rubbed off on them and, and it left them changed. Uh, Jesus' style became theirs. His acceptance, his love, his warmth, his compassion were absorbed by these men to such an extent that it literally transformed their lives. By the end of the first century, their ministry had sent shockwaves throughout the entire Roman Empire. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and I do recommend it. It's not the best one, perhaps. Uh, there's about three books that I've read that I would recommend if you're really wanting to understand grace. And <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. I still kind of struggle with this concept sometimes. You know, it's, it's a difficult thing with, with our human nature to really get a handle on it. I hope after the lesson this morning you'll have a little bit better one. I don't know. Anyway, he tells this story. In that book that he wrote, he says, During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what belief, if any, was unique to Christianity. <clears throat> and, of course, among the possibilities were the incarnation of Jesus when the God became flesh and, of course, his resurrection. However, they also discovered in their discussion that some other religions um, had ver various versions of God's appearing in the flesh, and they all, a couple of them even had some ideas about uh, a, a return from death. And this debate went on for some time and, uh, until C.S. Lewis walked in, and he asked them what they were talking about, and, and, uh, and so uh, he says, well, that's easy. It's grace. And after some further discussion, the others agreed with that. You see... Um, 
the notion of God's love coming to us, free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every human instinct. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, at least the way that they dealt with it, and the Muslim Code of Law, each of these offers a way to earn approval of the one that they worship. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Now, to be sure, an unconditional love, a grace and, and love can be abused. And we will discuss that a little bit more in, in just a moment. And yet the Bible, and I do know the Bible, as you would point out, well, the Bible teaches us to have faith, to repent, to be baptized. You, you've got you to gotta do something, but, not, but we need to note this. None of these is a condition of God's love. None of these is an attached string, so to, so to speak. What they are is simply a natural response of reaching out to accept God's love and His grace. How sure are you that you are a Christian, that, that you're saved? If you died right now, would you go to heaven? All right. Do you decide this, though, and here's the key, based on how well you are living the Christian life, or do you base it on what God has done? There is a difference. What is grace? You know, the word grace appears many times in the Bible, throughout the Bible, and you see numerous demonstrations of it described there in its pages. But you won't find a one-statement definition of what grace is. The late minister and Bible scholar David Barnhouse at one time said, and I think this is a key to it, love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection, but love that stoops is grace. And I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. To show grace, as the Bible speaks of it, is to extend favor or kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it and can never earn it. Favor is being extended simply out of the goodness of the heart of the giver, and that's God, and that's God's way of doing things. Generally, the world operates by a different principle, I think we, you all heard the saying, there ain't no free lunch. And in a sinful world, that's almost always the case. There is some truth to that. But in our relationship with God, grace comes to us free with no strings attached. We should not even try to repay it because to do so would be even, even be insulting, I believe, to God. Of course, God's grace motivates us to display acts of gratitude, but not as a means of securing his acceptance of us. We've been saved saved by grace to do good works, as verse 10 mentions of that passage that I read in your hearing just a a little while ago. Uh, These good works that he speaks of there in verse 10 simply arise naturally out of the grace that has been extended to us, or should. Suppose you invited a friend over for dinner, and uh, would you feel insulted if they seriously offered to pay for it? I think we'd feel a little insulted. But isn't it strange how the church is running over the people who think they must do something to repay God? They seem to think that they must work hard to earn his acceptance. If so, it would mean that our acceptance of God is based on our works and not on God's goodwill, and that's the opposite of grace. What is required of us is humility. It seems to me that the Christian world 
Christian, in, and I'm using that in the broadest sense, anyone who has a belief in Christ, today responds to God in, I think, one of three ways. We minimize our sin, or, and maybe it's along the same lines, we maximize our goodness, or we just sort of give up, you know, and we don't try because, after all, we're saved by grace, so it doesn't matter what I do. And none of those, I think, is what God has in mind. Um, just take a look at the world around us. Take a look at ourselves. We've been made in God's image. And according to Exodus 34 and verse 6, where it describes God's nature, in fact, it's the meaning of his name. Ethan has talked about this several times in, in his lessons. But there, it, God's nature is described as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, rich in a love that never wavers, faithful to who he is and what he is. And if you think about the depth of meaning to every one of those things, every one of those things, even the best of us can't measure up to that standard. And we don't, we haven't. And yet God loves us. And yet Jesus died for us. How can we not wish to be like him and to do his will? Obedience is simply a loving response to his grace rather than an attempt to gain God's favor and avoid the fires of hell. In the world and among its institutions, the idea that there is no free gift, no free lunch, is basically true. But that's not true with God and with his kingdom. Today we use grace to further talk about what it means. We use grace to describe many things in in life, very much like the ancient Greeks used the word that is translated grace in our Bibles. We talk about a well-coordinated runner or dancer who does what they do gracefully. Good manners being considered of others, that person is gracious toward us. Various expressions of kindness and mercy, that person is is gracious kind of person. Beautiful, well-chosen words are very gracious to us and encouraging to us. You see, there's just something delightful and beautiful and graceful about grace. In John chapter 8, Jesus stood before a woman, or stood alongside a woman, I should say, caught in adultery. The law was clear about what should be done. She was to be stoned. And the grace killers who apparently set her up expected Jesus to demand that she pay the penalty. Instead, Jesus employed grace when he said to those self-righteous Pharisees, let the one who is, who is without sin cast the first stone. And after they all walked away, he turned and he said to the woman, neither do I, I condemn you. Go and just don't sin anymore. Jesus employed grace when he urged his disciples to allow little children to come in to him. He employed grace when he spoke of the prodigal son and the significance of that story and of the good Samaritan and the significance of that story. He extolled grace when he spoke of the unnamed man who prayed in the temple in in contrast to the self-righteous Pharisee who was also there. This man prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And of course, there's the Lord's classic statement from the cross, Father, forgive them. They just don't realize what they're doing. No resentment, no bitterness, only grace. And it came from the only one on earth who had unlimited power at his disposal, including the power to come down from the cross unharmed. Truly amazing, this thing called grace.
Grace is a free gift. Human nature prefers to believe that life isn't free. I would suggest that the enemy of grace is humanism. Whatever good you might see in humanism, it's still the enemy of grace. It's a dangerous heresy. William Ernest Hurley was a, among the early, early humanists. He was born in Gloucester, England in 1849, crippled from childhood, and he wrote a piece that's been quoted for decades by valedictorians at high school graduations all across America. I remember it from my time in high school. Maybe some of the younger ones don't. I don't know. Anyway, it's called Invictus, and this is what he wrote. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the foil clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, talking about death, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Pretty heady stuff, isn't it, if you believe it verbatim? After all, if you, you and I have souls that are unconquerable, the sky's the limit. If you truly are the master of your fate and captain of your soul, nothing is out of your reach, and you can endure anything, you can accomplish anything. And as a matter of fact, that was what the valedictorians were trying to tell us when we graduated high school. Men, we can do it all, and we can really change this world. And they're still doing it. I've had several grandchildren graduate from high school recently, and that's always the message. You can do it. Sounds so right, so encouraging. But it's heresy because the focus is on self instead of on God. In fact, when Christians adopt this philosophy, it results in one thinking about what one can, we can do for God. We can accomplish anything. We can accomplish anything that God wants us to do. I think the favorite scripture for such folks is that God helps those who help themselves. Just in case you didn't know, that scripture is taken from the second book of Jerusalem. Uh, the fact is, God helps the helpless, the undeserving, those who don't measure up, and those who fail to achieve his standard. And another fact is that includes all of us. About 1936, Dorothea Day wrote an answer to Henley's Invictus, and her words cut to the heart of humanist philosophy. And I want you to notice the contrast between the two poems. It would help if you had these side by side, but... Hopefully you can remember what I read a moment ago, but I want you to notice the contrast. She entitled hers, My Captain. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his, the sway of circumstance, that is, since he is in control of things, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his, the aid despite the menace of the years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared the punishment from the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Quite a difference, quite a contrast. Focus not on self on Christ and what he has done, upon God and the grace that he's extended. Can you honestly say that Christ is the master of your faith, the captain of your soul? 
trust him. That's what he's asking us to do. His name is the only name that will take you to heaven when you die. You won't gain entrance because of your achievements or your fame or your fortune, but you won't get there because you don't have those things either. God will allow you into heaven only because you accepted the free gift of life in Christ Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Only grace. What God has done for you will you get in. And all that's asked of you is that you accept His grace. When you stand before God, don't rely on anything except Christ and the cross. Rely only on your experience of this free gift from God. I sometimes like to envision it like this. That when I stand there before God, Jesus is going to be there too. And if God asked me, why should I let you into my heaven? I say, well, Lord, I have nothing except Jesus. And Jesus is going to say, yes, Father, this is my brother. Oh, that's the only thing that's going to make get us there. Get me there, it's the only thing that will get you there. And if you're a lady, it won't be brother, it'll be sister. So we've got to make that clear. <laughs> Most of us see ourselves, I think, as captains of our fate. And why not? It supports our favorite sub- subject, self. It's been that way from the beginning, hasn't it? It all began in Genesis. Eve thought the forbidden fruit would make her wise like God, and Adam was stupid enough to go along with it. They're both guilty. It made it, well, it did make them wise, didn't it? Now they understood clearly what sin does as it separates you from God, the almighty, all-powerful, wonderful, merciful God. The great inspired Apostle Paul in, Ephesians, in Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> talks about the human condition in ways that is difficult for us to grasp. Beginning in verse 9 in chapter 3 of Romans, says this, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better than those who have been sinful? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's pretty strong. And yet I believe when we, when we look at our world around us and the way that people usually are, that pretty well describes us. And in humility, we need to turn to God and ask for his grace. Even the best human being has made it into the sinner category. On one hand, we readily admit that all of us are sinners, but on the other hand, we're prone to think, well, I'm not so bad. You know, and indeed, in, I think in today's culture, we're taught to think this way because of the psychology of self-esteem, to build yourself up rather than to humble yourself before God. And yet, probably not a single one of us will claim to be perfect. If that's universally true, how can anyone enter God's dwelling place? Nothing impure, unclean can live in God's presence. 99% pure may be all right, be all right for ivory soap, but not for heaven. 
don't know whether they still make ivory soap and advertise it 99% pure or not, but anyway, most of us that are a little bit older remember those advertisements, I'm, I'm quite sure. If you were handed a glass of water and told that it was, well, it's 99% pure, would you drink it? You know, probably not. The obvious answer is that that 1% could kill you, and, then, and that's what sin does. It kills. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. Now, I know that water today does have impurities in it, but we put other stuff in there to kill those things so that when we drink it, it's not impure anymore. If we stand a chance of entering heaven. We need a remedy for this condition that we're all sinners can offer our own lives in exchange for it because we're already dead in sin, and that's where God's grace comes in. Sin must be exceptionally bad if it required our Heavenly Father to give up His only Son before He could rescue us and we could become His people. We need to understand what Romans 3 is talking about. The benefits, though, of accepting God's grace are tremendous. In Romans chapter 5 and in verse 1, Bible says there, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that is, trusting in Jesus, acceptance of, trust of God's grace and what he's done, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One reason we find it difficult to turn loose and trust God's grace is because grace is risky. You know, Paul realized this, I think, when he responded to a question the Christians in, in Rome would surely ask when he had talked about in Romans chapter 5 uh, about this this concept and this whole idea, and he he mentions there that where sin abounded or where sin increased, God's grace increased even more. And so he asked in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So grace can be abused. If people are thinking like that, and some do, I think, but it's still grace is still the only way to go not only for heaven, but for this life as well. Uh, Charles Swindoll offers some uh, three practical suggestions to help ward off the extremes of either license, that is, doing whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter because I'm saved by grace, or legalism, which says, well, I've got to do all the right things in the right way or I'm in serious trouble. But he offered these as as suggestions about how to ensure a balanced life. It's not those extremes. It's somewhere, grace puts us somewhere in, in, the, in between. He said, first of all, if you want to enjoy the freedom grace offers, simply guard against the extremes. Try your best to keep balanced and then enjoy it. No reason to feel guilty. No reason to be afraid. Simply give yourself permission to be free. But don't go crazy. But neither should you spend time looking over your shoulder worrying about what someone might be doing and judging your behavior and wondering what they will say. And secondly, he said, treat grace as an undeserved privilege rather than an exclusive right. And there's a difference between that con- those two concepts, uh, I think. Live gratefully, but not arrogantly. Have fun, but don't flaunt your liberty. Develop an attitude of gratitude. And thirdly, he said, remember that while grace is free to you, it costs the Savior his life. They seem free, but the purchase price which he paid, not you, was terribly expensive. And undoubtedly, this very fact is the foundation of our gratitude and allows us to live in, in balance because it humbles us and helps us to recognize it's not me, it's him. For the Apostle Paul, grace went beyond salvation, as vital as, as that is. It embraced his daily life. Put another way, or in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, 15, rather, verses 9 through 10, he said, For I am the least of the apostles, 
and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. His understanding of grace, his use of grace, his working with grace went beyond the fact of, of, that, that God saved him, Christ saved him on the cross. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, he put it another way, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything Paul was and everything he hoped to be revolved around the Lord Jesus Christ. And this grace had a, a positive effect in his life. Although he was in a Roman prison when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, he said this in verse, chapter 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. We're saved by grace, but we also live by grace. Romans chapter 6, in verses 3 through 15, the verses, follow, uh, verses there that talked about we can't live in in, uh, in sin any longer, you know, that we, he talks about us being baptized into Christ, but he goes on to point out there that we, as, as we understand this, as we do this, we choose some things differently. We determine to, to, to ex- embrace and accept the goodness of God rather than to ex- uh, accept in, in, sin into our lives. And there's a lot in that passage. I would read it, but I don't want to take the time to do it. But there's a lot in there we won't touch on, but we need to remember that the message basically is this. Life lived under grace can be and ought to be dramatically different from what we normally experience. And grace is what makes it possible. What can you expect when you arise from your your own feeble attempts to earn God's acceptance and and, and then instead you depend wholly on his undying grace instead? You can expect to gain a greater appreciation for God's gifts to you and to others. The gift of salvation, first of all, but also the gifts of laughter, of music, of beauty, of nature, of friendships, of forgiveness, of children and grandchildren, of the love and concern of Christian brothers and sisters, of life and breath and joy and hope. I think our understanding of grace and acceptance of grace enhances all of those pleasures. Secondly, you can expect to spend less time and energy being concerned about and critical of other people's choices in life. You'll allow others more room to make their own decisions in life, even when you might have chosen otherwise, because you extend the grace to them that God has extended to you. And thirdly, you can expect to become more tolerant and less judgmental. I guess that follows right on that same thought. You'll begin to cultivate a desire for authentic faith rather than a religion based on performance and externals, which often creates in us a tendency to not only harshly judge ourselves, but other people too. And fourthly, you can expect to take a giant step toward maturity. Understanding of grace opens up some new vistas of of understanding and spiritual growth, and these will open up before your eyes. Your world of living in spirit, that is, in your spiritual nature versus the flesh, and living through the spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit, will expand. Your understanding of that, I think, will grow even more and more. Of 
course, it should go without saying that your growth will be limited only by the amount of time you are willing to spend in the Word of God, the Bible, which the Holy Spirit inspired and which is, is His primary tool for maturing you. Don't expect to grow in your understanding of grace or grow in your relationship with God if you're just waiting for God to zap you somehow or you absorb it by osmosis. Get into the Word and let the Holy Spirit work on your heart through the things that are there and work on your spirit. Randy Alcorn in the book Edge of Eternity writes this, Those who know their unworthiness seize grace as a hungry man man seizes bread. The self-righteous resent grace. My prayer is that none of us ever becomes complacent about God's grace, but that we remain hungry for it and seize it with our very being. And I guarantee when you do that, when I do that, life will never be the same. And That's the thought I want to leave you with. There may be those here this morning that just want the prayers of the of brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus for strength, for encouragement in a way that they can maybe understand grace better, but certainly live it out in their lives a little bit better. And if that's your, your need and you want others to pray for you, we'd encourage you to come this morning. Or if you have some other need, you want brothers and sisters to pray with you and for you as well. Or it may be that you're ready now to say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ by being immersed in the waters of baptism. Whatever your need this morning, we'd encourage you to come while we stand.